Josh died in 2011. That was a few years ago now. And, you know, we are aware that hardly anyone hasn't experienced grief in one form or another. Now, the grief of a parent is very different from other forms of grief, but grief is something that we will all experience. So our thinking is that if we can model a less fearful approach around this subject, then people may find the courage to step up to the subject with less anxiety and therefore the bereaved will be less isolated. Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleason, and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from ordinary people on their experience of loss, how their grief impacted them, and what helped them to find their feet again. Loss can really have such a profound effect on our lives, and it is my hope that Shapes of Grief will provide comfort, hope and inspiration to our listeners, so that together we can get more comfortable talking about grief. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a patron of Shapes of Grief on patreon.com. This is a listener-supported podcast, so please do donate, like, share and review. It really does keep us going. For more grief resources and grief support, find and follow us on all the usual social media channels and on shapesofgrief.com. today to be joined by Jane Harris from the Good Grief Project. Welcome Jane. Thank you Liz, it's great to be talking to you today. I'm so delighted that you're here Jane because you have so much wisdom and hope to offer bereaved parents and I'm hoping that through our conversation we'll be able to mine some of that wisdom and that listeners will be able to get some stepping stones some inspiration, some hope for their own journey today. So Jane, just take us back. Your life was very different nine years ago. Mm -hmm. What was your life like before 2011? So before 2011, I was working as a therapist. and My life was like most people's lives, up and down, but fairly even. I suppose my life was good, actually, in many ways. But in January 2011, we got that knock on the door that no parent ever wants to get and our world kind of changed. It, it landed in a very different order because we were informed by two very young police officers that our son had been killed in a road accident whilst travelling in Vietnam. And everything kind of stopped. Our lives ground to a halt and we found ourselves in a very unfamiliar place, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to proceed and in a way blinded. So in in, in the blink of an eye, everything was changed. And nine years later, here in Dublin, for the screening of your documentary, A Love That Never Dies, which was a homage to Josh, Joshua, your son, who was 22, 
when he was killed. This is Josh was 22 when he died and yeah. in a way Josh has taken us on the most remarkable journey since he died and I would never have expected that. So, you know, I was working as a therapist at the time and we were, I suppose, at a stage in our lives where Josh was 22, we'd given him roots and he had flown wings to fly and we'd let him go and I think I felt at that point very secure I thought well we've done our job and we've let him go and I kind of relaxed because I think all parents have a sense of responsibility um, and, you know when their kids are living with them and uh, Josh had left home and he, he'd found his dream job he was very happy he was working for a music company called the Ministry of Sound in London and he'd just taken some time out to go travelling to Vietnam because he was already a young producer and he produced lots of films for them and so he was going to go away, come back and carry on doing what he'd always wanted to do. So he'd found his dream and I think we just felt so proud of him. You know, he'd gone from this young boy lacking in confidence to this young man who was oozing confidence, who'd found his dream job. And so, you know, the awful reality was that from one day to the next we were bereaved parents. We'd gone from a secure kind of base to being bereaved parents and we knew we had to organise a funeral and no parent ever expects to organise their child's funeral. It's in the wrong order of things and you have no experience, you have no knowledge and you have no time to do it. So we had no idea what we were going to do but as a family instinctively I think we knew at that point we had to get together. We had to gather together, we had to allow his brother and sister to be in the same room with us. We had to join up and, and think about what's next. Um, and we did huddle together in, in, in front of a fire for days, it seems, thinking about the funeral. Our community were amazing. They arrived on our doorstep with food. Um, they took care of us. They fed us. I don't know if we ate anything. I don't know what happened. But we did plan his funeral. and. His funeral was an amazing thing because his young friends, all 22, like Josh, didn't want to be part of that funeral initially because they were afraid that they would be upset, that they would cry, that they would express emotions. And of course, we found ourselves in the position of having to reassure them and say to them, of course you will, and we want that to be the case. We want you to be able to express what you feel. It's okay. And I think at that point they were worried about us. Um, so they gave us great strength and they came, they wrote songs, they were remarkable. They cried, they laughed, they were just amazing. And that bond hasn't shifted or changed. We remain very close to his friends who even set up something called Postcards to Josh, which was actually an idea that one of his friends had had that whenever they went travelling they'd send him a postcard. So we have about 100 postcards in the last eight years, over the last eight years, from different parts of the world. Interestingly written in the present tense, Dear Josh, I'm in Thailand, I'm having a beer with you, miss you, love you, whatever. His friends were great, but of course, you see, we made a film called Beyond Goodbye, which was about the funeral, but after the funeral was over and everyone had gone home, we found ourselves alone, really. And there was an expectation that we would be who we'd always been before he died that we wouldn't have changed, that we would be the same as we were before he died. And of course, anyone who's lost a child will know this, but we didn't know it at the time, is that you're so fundamentally changed by this death that is in the wrong order of things that you're never that person again. You're changed for the rest of your life. And that doesn't have to be a bad thing, in fact, because you learn about what's really important. Your priorities shift. 
and you realize what's absolutely fundamentally important. But it does mean that it's very difficult for your friends because they want you to be how you were. They feel helpless, they feel anxious, they feel worried. And so we had to deal with that too. And I think that the idea of setting up a charity, which is the Good Grief Project, and going on a road trip was in a way a respite. It was something, setting up the charity was about helping people to recognize that being active about grief was important, that grief is about doing, it's about creating, if you can. And for us, we'd always done that sort of thing. We'd always made films, taken photographs. We'd always been very, I suppose, active in, in, in that sort of area. But the idea of traveling was something that we thought might also be very cathartic and very therapeutic. And before Josh had died, we'd wanted to do a road trip, but when he did die, we thought, no, we can't travel. Why would we want to travel? And slowly it dawned on us that we'd like to travel across America and make a film that was, if you like, a homage to Josh, because he died when he was traveling. We'd also like to talk to other parents about how they'd managed their loss and their grief and what had helped them. We also wanted to help people be a little bit less afraid of grief and death because what we had become painfully aware of was that people were terrified of saying the wrong thing. They were terrified of upsetting us. And so with the best will in the world, a lot of people said nothing rather than I don't know what to say or I don't know painful. how to help. Yeah, so we thought maybe we can actually, if you like, facilitate more communication. Well, I'm a therapist and, and, you know, as you know, Jimmy makes films and we've made films together about personal life events. So we're a good combination. We both share a curiosity mm. about communication and about changing ideas. So the road trip became something that was becoming more and more real. And mm. uh, we contacted Robert Neumeyer in the States who put us in touch with people. We contacted the Compassionate Friends. We contacted other organizations and we're flooded with responses. So in America. This was a few years down the line. This right? was a few years down the line. I'd love to pause you and just mm -hmm. go back. Yep, um, sure. You mentioned two very young policemen mm. knocked at the door, and it seems to be relevant to you mm. that they were young. Yes. Yes, what was very striking was that when they told us that we had a sense that they didn't feel equipped to break that news, they couldn't hold our reactions, they couldn't manage the fact that. We didn't want to believe it. We didn't want to hear it. They had no support. They came in our, into our lives and they disappeared and we never saw them again. And if you think about it, wouldn't it be a great idea to have some form of continuity that maybe someone could have come back or they could have had some kind of briefing or support? And flicking right forward again, of course, it's no surprise that we now give presentations to police and detectives and, yeah. and people working in high-powered um, professions around how to break bad news because of course what professionals ha in, in, in whatever area they work in don't seem to realize is that you can't just do that instinctively you need training about Absolutely. the fact that you're powerless to help others they can't make Josh undead they can't bring him back so they have to be able to say we we're here to tell you something we're we, we, we can't fix this we're here to support you. But of course, what they want to do is to say, but it'll be okay, you'll be fine, you'll be okay, it'll be great, you know, you'll get over it. Not helpful Yeah. at yeah. that point when you're in shock and you're traumatized. And of course, I think most people who have been through untimely grief and death would realize that every bereaved parent is traumatized because you can't experience the death of your child and not be traumatized. So we need to get over possibly our terror of the word trauma.
Yeah. There's trauma and there's trauma. There's many levels of trauma. Hi everyone, excuse this brief interruption. It's Liz here and I wanted to tell you about my grief training program. If you are interested in becoming grief literate or grief trained, I've designed a comprehensive online program which you can do at your own pace in your own time. It's been designed primarily for healthcare providers, but we all have a right to grief training and education. So if you're interested, then it's for you too. Sign up today at shapesagrief.com. Now, back to the podcast. Jane, you said, you know, that losing a child changes you fundamentally. Mm. How did that manifest? How did this trauma and the untimely death of Josh manifest? How did it change you? I think that very quickly we realised that certain things weren't important. You know, what was important was being able to communicate freely and openly with people about what really mattered. We were finding it increasingly difficult to fit in in the early stages. We couldn't do the social bit in the way we had before. I could still function, actually, as a working person. I, I could still run my private practice, but what I couldn't manage was the conversations, or if you like, the lack of conversations around our reality. So when I wasn't at work, it was like the mask had to go on, and I found myself in this artificial world. So I, I very quickly realised, I think Jimmy did too, you know, Jimmy as a dad and me as a mum, that people didn't want to talk to us about the fact that our child had died. So we had to look at areas where we could find conversations, open conversations, and we very quickly discovered the power of peer-to-peer -peer support um, and linked up with the Compassionate Friends, which was a really useful stepping stone in the very early stages and in that first two years we made a film for the compassionate friends and i became a trustee for a short time which i am no longer because so much else has happened and i haven't got time anymore but we made a film for them called say their name which is available online and the idea behind this film is that say your child's name it really helps if you if you mention a child's name to a bereaved parent they might cry or they might you know they might react but usually they're reacting because they're so overjoyed that you've actually had the courage to mention their child's name so it may be tears of relief it's bridging it's bridging that yeah. gap it's saying you know gosh I'm so sorry about Josh that might bring a tear to my eye but I'd be thinking how nice that that person mentioned his name and so say their name was our first sort of mm. if you like step in the direction of supporting other bereaved parents and giving something back to the compassionate friends but then we realized as we would as filmmakers that we wanted to go on and make a feature documentary not for the faint-hearted very ambitious massive project if we thought more about it we might not have done it because it was huge um, and we began to plan that which took the form of a trip across America you know we started in, in New York and we drove to San Francisco interviewing um, bereaved parents about their experiences of life after the death of a child, about their relationships. We talked to siblings. Um, we tried to get as diverse a group of people as possible to share their stories. So in a way, I would say the film is as much a love story as a road trip, Absolutely. as a story about death. How it's, did it change you, the road trip? Well, the road trip didn't change me so much as the years before, I think. The road trip in itself was, you know, anyone who makes films will know that making films is really hard work because you're, 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 you know, there's so much practical stuff to organise. But what was really 
amazing about the actual project was that every bereaved parent we spoke to was desperate to speak to us. So in many ways what we were discovering was that they were as isolated as we felt and they couldn't believe that we wanted to talk to them about their child who was no longer here. So the intimacy of the film and the integrity with which we treated our subjects comes across immediately when you watch the film. We have the utmost respect for our subjects. It really does come across. And right. For anyone listening, I'll put a link to where they can access the film as well. Yes, absolutely. It's a must see yeah. for anyone experiencing grief or wanting to support someone experiencing grief. Mm. So you said the road trip. The road trip is, it reminds me of a modern day parable. Do you know that Buddha story of um, the woman whose child dies and she brings their child to Buddha and Buddha says, okay, I will bring your child back, but you need to fill my bowl with rice and you have to get the rice from the houses in the yeah. village that yeah. have not experienced a loss. And so the mother goes frantically to every house looking to fill her bowl, but of course she can't find anyone who hasn't experienced loss. Well, th this is certainly what we find now, you know, Josh died in 2011, that was a few years ago now, and you know, we are aware that hardly anyone hasn't experienced grief in one form or another. Now the grief of a parent is very different from other forms of grief, but grief is something that we will all experience. So our thinking is that if we can model a less fearful approach around this subject, then people may find the courage to step up to the subject with less anxiety, and therefore the bereaved will be less isolated. But that's a big and challenging thing to do. But we felt that by opening those conversations and always being present um, at the Q&As whenever we could, you know, because we showed the film, the film launched last May in London in Leicester Square to a packed audience. We were there for a Q&A as Josh's parents, as a couple. And we've been touring the UK and we've been to the Czech Republic, we've now come to Dublin, we've been all over the place. And the film is now available worldwide. But the point was initially to actually be present ourselves at the screenings to say, this is a couple, Jane and Jimmy are parents who've experienced the death of their child. They're together as a couple. Couples can survive this. Because what we had found was that there was a sense that people would say, oh, well, couples don't survive. Relationships fall apart. And of course, relationships might fall apart, but relationships might fall apart anyway. And so our point was that relationships need working at, people need to communicate. You know, a good relationship doesn't just happen unless I'm living in a parallel universe and, you know, yeah. that they do need to be worked at. And any difficulties that might have been there anyway, the volume goes up on them. Exactly. So the volume was so, so, you know, at a Q&A, it was always important to us that we'd be there as a mother and a father, a dad and a mum who had experienced that most awful of losses. But as the screenings progressed, we found that we'd have people coming to our screenings who haven't been able to have children, who've lost their only child, who have no surviving children, who, who, who had miscarriages, you know, who had loss of home, loss of identity. Loss is everywhere and it will find its way out one way or the other through ill health, yeah. physical or psychological symptoms. And so we're trying, uh, we were trying and are still trying to integrate those discussions in a more joined up way mm. and give people space to talk about it, whether they have children, they don't have children, in a respectful way. And, and I think people find that really helpful, though I have also noticed that at screenings, some people who may have had miscarriages say, oh, well, I shouldn't really 
be sharing my story because I haven't, you know, I'm not the same or it's different. And I say, well, actually, we don't want to get into a pecking order of loss no, here. We don't want to create a hierarchy. Though, of course, if you've lost your only child, you know, that is unimaginable. There is no survival. I'm very lucky, myself and Jimmy are very lucky that we have other children. And there's not a day goes by that we don't think of that. And we're aware of that. And at screenings, we're very aware of parents who have lost their only child. However, what we're trying to say is that we don't want grief to be something that is as isolating as it clearly is. And that seems to be a common complaint amongst the bereaved, yeah. um, that they feel so lonely, so empty. You said that the road trip didn't change you, it was the years before. Would you tell us about the years before yeah. and that loneliness yeah. and isolation? So the years before, I suppose, were about discovering just how frightened people are of what bereaved parents represent. There's almost a worry that it's catching. And I don't think that's necessarily conscious because I do feel that everybody's well-intentioned, that people are basically kind. But, you know, I have been on the receiving end as virtually every bereaved parent I know of cliches such as, well, maybe he's in a better place or everything happens for a reason or at least you don't need to worry about him anymore. And of course, every bereaved parent would say, stop, don't say that, please. Because, you know, to say to me, in my, my GP actually said to me, um, no longer my GP, in the very early stage when I went to see her after Josh had died, she said, well, everything happens for a reason. I said, well, I don't think you're a parent. And she said, no, I'm not a parent. And I said, because actually for a parent, that is really not helpful. When your child dies, if you say that's happened for a reason, that's just not helpful. What's helpful is to say, I may not have the words, but I can point you, I can signpost you in the right direction. I feel anxious about your grief, or I feel that I don't know what to say, but I, I'm not going to come out with those cliches. So that was very quickly apparent to us. Nobody can make this better. Nobody. Anyone who, anyone who tries is probably making it worse. Well, yeah, and you know, none of us like to be powerless. Um, we, we like to fix things. And of course, the people who suffer most with this is the, are the people who are fixers who yeah. want to make things better. You know, there's nothing worse than being someone who fixes things. There. They spend their whole lives fixing things, mending things, working in a profession that cures. To have a bereaved parent come along and they can't do anything for them because they are distraught. And of course, the greatest gift, in my humble opinion, that you can give a bereaved parent is to say, I know this can't be fixed, but I want to listen hard and I want to try my best to signpost you or to connect you up with someone, or just to be here for you. Did you find that any of your friends or family were able to tolerate your grief and be there for you, or do they have to learn? I think people have to learn, but the thing is that, you know, what I discovered is that grief isn't dignified and silent. You know, there's this idea that, you know, people will be a silent and dignified widow when their partner, husband, wife dies, and they go around like floating on dignity and, um, same with bereaved parents, it can be angry, it can be messy, it can be blooming awful. You can say things that shock people. And one of the subjects in our film is wonderful because women on the whole don't express that kind of anger freely. And Kim in our film expresses her anger in a way that I find very cathartic, very useful. But of course she alienated everyone through her expression of anger. 
her family stepped away from her and couldn't cope with it. And I think that people feel offended by that because they think, well, I'm only trying to help and she was rude to me. So that's a common thing that, you know, if people want to be able to be alongside the bereaved, I suppose they have to be able to be alongside the bereaved in the messy moments as much as in the tearful moments. And um, I don't think people expect that. So I'm saying that as a therapist and as a bereaved parent. You know, I have clients who come to me all the time who complain about the isolation they feel, about the fact that people think, well, it's six months now, come on, you should be over it. Aren't you better now? Have you found closure? And what I would say about that is that I find the closure word, the dirty C word, I think we found openings We've found openings that have been really interesting in terms of conversations. We've met the most inspirational people. We've connected with organizations. We've traveled different cultures. In Vietnam, people were so inclusive. There, our daughter said to us in Vietnam, there's a place for death here, isn't there? It's comfortable. Whereas at home, it was uncomfortable. Because he went back to Vietnam where Josh We went back to Vietnam, to, to yeah. the place where he died. And that took yeah. us two years to go there. Yeah. But for us, and I'm not saying this is the way that, you know, there's no right or wrong in this, and everyone does grief differently, men, women, families. But for us, we needed to go back there because we hadn't been to the place where he died. We didn't, you know, we didn't get to sort of say goodbye to him. So that was an important part of our grieving journey. But I'm not suggesting that's right for everyone. It certainly helped us. And as a family, it helped us connect at all sorts of levels. And I think for his brother and sister, it was fantastically important to be able to travel with us, to be together, to, if you like, I suppose, help each other through that. It really helped. Can I ask you, Jane, you hmm. saying again, you know, how grief changes us so fundamentally and we don't just get over it or go back to normal. It's, it's a, a seismic shift in our lives. How did your grief affect you physically? Physically? I suppose I lost a lot of weight in the early stages, but what I did do was I, 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 I was running before Josh died and I ran um, a half marathon, much to my surprise, not long after he died. Now, I suppose I did that on adrenaline, but it was amazingly helpful. The physical exercise really saved my life and I think that's one of the underpinnings of our new charity, The Good Grief Project, because a fundamental part of that is that being active and being creative really helps. And when you need exercise, when you need these things most, it's when you least want to do them. So running saved my life. I used to go running in the early stages and then just find this amazing release and just sit in a field and cry. And that was fantastically helpful for me. Jimmy found swimming, ice swimming, swimming in cold water. He swims all through the winter. And that saved his life, you know, in many ways because he found that was a natural antidepressant. When you say saved your life or saved his life, how might it have been if you'd stayed inert in your grief? I and suppose, not moved it or expressed it? Well, being a therapist, I suppose I don't have an issue about accessing therapy. So I would have always found therapy, and I think Jimmy would have too. But for lots of people, they don't feel that's okay because there's such a stigma attached to it, isn't there? But I think without being active and creative, we would have got stuck and we wouldn't be able to make the films we've made. And I wouldn't be sitting here having these conversations. I might not have gone back to work. But I have found my work to be really 
important to me and that I'm a much better practitioner than I ever was before. Josh died because I suppose I found a strength and an awareness that I wouldn't otherwise have discovered. And the thing about being active and creative is that in the doing, you're moving forward. And I think the thing about bereavement is you can get stuck in time, you can get stuck back there. The film opens with a reverse shot of people moving backwards and we felt we were left behind and everyone else's lives moved forward and we had some catching up to do and so our charity the good grief project is very much about that and what we find is that people who come on our retreats come with a sense of can't do this what's the point i'm going home and within no time at all they've discovered that being in a in in a in a safe and containing environment amongst other people who are supporting them gives them permission to move forward to catch up because in a, actually what we're talking about is continuing bonds the idea that you carry your child with you within you whether you're religious whether you're not continuing bonds is about a sort of if you like finding a more comfortable place to carry your child forward and so we use photography in that way and we use other creative mediums in that way and we find that the people who come on our retreats just get so much strength out of that idea they don't think it's possible they might arrive with one photograph thinking don't touch it I can't you know it's it's the only photo they've got and they leave with something new yeah, and they find that, that just amazing and they share it with each other I don't know who who said this famous quote maybe you do that death ends a life not a relationship exactly and that's exactly you know you're as a parent you will always be your child's parent you know you will always love them and you grieve as much as you love don't you that's 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 the the nature of grief but for parents it's so powerful and so intense and you will never stop being your child's parent and i think people can get stuck there unless they get the right help you know and we would say that I suppose by making films we hope to be able to uh, get across this idea that it is possible to survive and one of the women in our film Kim who if you like expresses her anger so beautifully in the early stages of her grief she wanted to take her life she wanted to end her life because she couldn't imagine moving forward and she shared that 15 years on, the grass had never looked greener and the sky had never looked bluer. But she would never have believed that back then. And, you know, she just couldn't face carrying on and in, the, in those early stages. And she was self-medicating with, with alcohol. That was the only thing that helped her. And it's really helpful for people to realise that if they have thoughts like that, it's not abnormal. And it's not permanent. And it's not permanent. Everything and if it changes, yeah. tolerate those early weeks and months and years. If you can get through that, and of course yeah. there are people who can't, and they need to have that help yeah. that's available. But I think that you know what we're saying is that grief affects people differently. Everyone grieves differently. Siblings need their own space because they're so often the, the invisible grievers, the forgotten mourners. You know, I think we can't quickly realise that when Rosa said to me in the early stages, Mom, everyone asks how you are, but nobody ever asks how I am. And I felt really bad for her, but I'm delighted to say that, you know, she has found support through other sibling groups, peer-to-peer -peer groups, and Joe too, and they're now part of the Good Grief Project. They help run our retreats. Right. And I think that's very reassuring. And, you know, I 
it's it's awful for your child to be a bereaved sibling. It's a terrible thing to lose your best friend or your sibling, you know, because it takes away your belief in the world. I suppose when things happen to you when you're young, that young, you think that the world is very different. Everything is not the way you thought it would be. And you lose your faith in the world and in other people. And in safety and, and in your safety. assumptions for the future. Exactly. So basic assumptions are destroyed yeah. and trust is destroyed. So it does mean that future relationships can be heavily impacted and that for a lot of siblings yeah. it's too risky. And for a lot of parents it's too risky. So they become more and more isolated and insular in their grief and cut off. Dysfunctionally independent to avoid the pain of, of loss again. Exactly. You mentioned, Jane, you know, that everybody's grief is different and everybody grieves differently. And yet we do have a lot in common. Also, you know, a lot of what you're saying, you've heard it from other people and I've heard it from other people. That notion of time standing still. You know, I've heard that over and over again when you hear about somebody's death or you witness somebody's death, how your life is just a you know, big pause button is pressed and everyone else goes on as normal and wants you to quickly catch up with them. But the other theme that I hear is the importance of activity, the importance of motion, the importance of expression, whether it's swimming or art or photography, but find something to help you make your grieving an active process. Yes, absolutely. I think that, you know, there's a children's book called We're All Going on a Bear Hunt, and the idea yes. behind it is that, you know, you can't go around it, you've got to go through it. And unfortunately, that's absolutely true, because the more you skirt around it, the more likely you are for it to catch, the more likely it is to catch up with you. And yeah. one of our subjects in the film talks about, it's a very American expression, leaning into the grief. And she says she didn't know what the heck that meant in the early stages. But she was beginning to find out because she was realizing that the more she felt the grief, the more she expressed it, the more she was finding her strength again. And the more steady she was beginning to feel on her feet again. And what she's saying is that with the passing of time, the jagged edges get less jagged. The pain never goes away completely, because why would it? I think that's a shock for people who aren't bereaved. That's normal for a parent. But it gets less jagged around the edges. It becomes less of a kind of total block. It becomes much more integrated. Your grief can become a part of you that you can manage. And so, for example, I would say eight years on, nine years on that, for me, you know, I will always think of Josh and I'll see someone who might remind me of him but occasionally like Christmases and birthdays affect me a lot because I think oh Josh would be 30 oh his friends have ha are starting to have children I wonder what Josh's children might have been if he'd had children Christmases and birthdays anniversaries really affect me more than his death day actually the day that he died because they're the days that I'm thinking what would he be like now? What might have been. What might have been. Yeah. Uh, I no longer think about the what-ifs and the maybes because that's not helpful. I no longer feel guilty and there's nothing I could have done about Josh's death, but every parent feels that somehow they failed if they haven't protected their child. Jimmy, as a dad, would say, as a dad, I lost my role, my identity as a father. You know, what could we have done? But actually, 
what we're trying to say is that, you know, in a way to move forward, you have to forgive yourself, not that you've done anything wrong, but you have to move forward in a hopeful way. And so the general feedback after our screenings are that people come to see the film nervously, with anxiety. They're happy to go and see bloodthirsty fiction films about death and loss. But show them a documentary about real life and they're wanting to run a mile. People will come to see our documentary and they'll say, I was so nervous coming through the door. And at the end of the film, they'll say, I'm really glad I came. I feel hopeful. But that is an interesting one, isn't it? Because our film isn't violent. It's not, you know, but it's reality. It's real. And a little boy of 11 came to see our film and he told us, that he felt good after seeing the film and he was going to go to show and tell and talk to his teacher about it because he couldn't understand why it had never really been discussed this subject of people dying. And of course I did feel a moment of anxiety thinking well I do hope his teacher picks up that conversation rather than saying yes yes now let's just yeah. look at what the weather's like or you know change the subject. Absolutely because children they, they have a right to know. Yes. Children are very good at dealing with death, but we as their parents need to give them permission. And of course, a grieving child is in a very difficult position when a brother or sister's died, because not only have they lost their sibling, they've also, through no fault of their parents, lost their parents because their parents are unavailable to them. And there's a young woman in A Love That Never Dies called Taylor who talks about that. She felt she'd lost her mum, she'd lost her dad. Everyone around her was saying, they're the sad family, they weren't doing well. They were critical of her. And of course she said, I think we're doing really well in our grief, but why can't people accept us as we are? But she certainly was suffering on top of that with this idea that she'd lost her mum and dad temporarily. I think as well something that I come across a lot is parents who don't want to talk to their children about it because they don't want to upset them the children who don't want to talk to the parents because they don't want, it's like they can't tolerate each other's grief. Was that ever a thing for you four? And how did you overcome that? I think that's inevitably a very common thing for most people. Um, you know, it happens between couples. It's very hard for me to see Jimmy's grief. It's very hard for Jimmy to see my grief. And we learned quite quickly that it was very important for us to take turns to grieve. Even still, is it hard for you to see his grief? It's easier because we found a way of taking turns. So now we're more comfortable, both of us. We both have moments. But of course, Jimmy's way of dealing with it would be to go for a nice cold swim. And then he feels he's with Josh. He swims, he feels good, he feels hopeful. It lifts his spirits. Or he might talk to me and vice versa. I might go for a run or a walk, just look at nature. And I feel better again. I feel stronger again. But for the children, it's the same thing, you know, they, they look for signs. We all look for signs. Is he okay? Is she okay? And in the early stages, that's a nightmare. Because nobody's okay. And nobody's okay. And of course, yeah. an awful lot of couples get caught up in self-medicating through alcohol or whatever. And Rosa know? was only 15 when Josh died. So Rosa was 18 when Josh and died. 18. Yeah, 18 at the time. And she was at college. And... She was in the middle of her A-levels, actually, so that was a difficult time for her. But I think because they were so involved in, in Josh's funeral, that really helped. And because we're the sort of family who 
I mean, I said to her, gosh, Rosa, you, you know, you must find it difficult that we're so public about grief. And she said, well, mom, it's, I'm used to it now. But what she also said was it means that, you know, I've got used to talking about it. We're public about it ourselves. And I said to her, you know, none of us want to share Josh's story, really. It's private. It's ours. It's our grief. It's our, he's our boy. But there is something about being open about your grief, which actually in the long term is helpful not only for ourselves, but for our children. And you know, when you make a film, it's very public. Sure. It's very public. And I think both myself and Jimmy at times think, mm, you know, do we really want to share our story? But we also know that there's a very good reason for doing it. But nobody wants to share their private lives. And I think we do it for the right reasons. I like to think we do. And that yeah. reason is that we don't want grief to be such a it's so shrouded in silent in silence so unspeakable so much the cause of illness we want it to be much more integrated in the fabric of people's lives because you know whether we like it or not we're none of us going to avoid it every one of us is going to die hopefully not so many of us are going to experience untimely death but it is remarkable how many people do the the, the death of a partner you know, suddenly someone's diagnosed with a terrible illness, leukemia, cancer, motor neuron disease. You think about it. I mean, there's so many illnesses that come and rip your feet from under you and you're left in shock and trauma yeah. trying to survive. And I think it is the bereaved or the, those who are experiencing loss of any kind who are leading the conversation about grief and grief support because we go through it and we realise there is nobody there there's nobody who understands this. Or we're shocked when we meet someone who does get it because it's so infrequent. So I think a lot of bereaved people are saying we want to spare others from this isolation and pain. That's so we're true. going to start educating people or sharing our experience. Yes. It's a huge gift. And we're also saying, you know, that people need more training. You know, if you're working with palliative care, if you're working with children who are going to die, with serious illnesses, you want to be able to talk to their families about that. You know, there's amazing people like Catherine Mannix who's doing wonderful work around this, you know, how to step up to people who are dying in a way that is open and fearless. You know, it's really important and um, so many people in, in, in very high-powered, successful jobs, even in the medical profession, don't feel no. equipped they don't feel you, equipped to do that. You often hear somebody who is dying trying to open the conversation with their loved ones. I don't have much longer, or maybe this is it, or I need to talk about a will. And the families will jump in, don't be silly, don't, don't go there, don't talk about that. It's like they can't tolerate it or bear it. But it's such a gift to be able to say to someone, well, how do you feel about that? Or What's that reality like for you? Yes, that's right. Or do you want to talk about this? Let's hmm. let's make space. Exactly. Or if there's something you want to say, to be able to say it before it's too late. You know, or, I mean, there's every reason under the sun to make this less terrifying for people. You know, imagine a young child who's diagnosed with a life-limiting illness, age five, and has only one year left to live. And everyone has to work out what is the best plan, what is the best way forward. You know, there are people out there who can guide you about how best to do that. But families need to be able to communicate 
and model something for the children, if you like, you know, that it's okay to talk about it honestly and openly. And that is extremely complicated. What would you like to see come from all this work you've done, Jane, that yourself and Jimmy have done? I mean, you've produced Beyond Goodbye, which is a beautiful um, visual of Josh's funeral and the celebration of his life and the grief and the joy all embroidered in together. You both have produced a documentary called I Grieve, Therefore I Swim, Jimmy's journey through swimming to help him through his grief. And then obviously this full-length documentary, A Love That Never Dies. What do you want to come from it all? I suppose what I want is not to feel the need to do this kind of work in a way. And that's a slightly utopian thought because, you know, we inhabit a world where grief is still shrouded in silence. You know, people only want to know about grief if it's a celebrity or if it's an important person and then they'll read about it and they'll they'll become obsessed with it. But when it's just ordinary, everyday grief of a very ordinary person, people don't want to know about it. They'd rather not know because they fear that it's catching. It's something that's going to affect them. You know, it, it's too difficult to think about. It's their very worst nightmare. And I suppose I'd like people to feel that through watching our films, that they can, if you like, comfort their friends. This isn't a film that is for people who are bereaved. This is a film for people who are bereaved, their families, friends and anyone else who wants to be able to have a conversation that leaves someone feeling less alone and isolated. That's what I want. I want, I want grief, untimely death to be something that doesn't make people run a mile. And I hope by sharing stories in a very ordinary way, I mean, we're actually sharing extraordinary stories, I suppose, but it's sharing it in an ordinary way, having conversations, hosting Q&As. People will have the courage to step up to us and through asking us questions, they'll have the confidence to go away and ask other people. In a way, they're testing things out on us. And, you know, if I'm speaking to healthcare professionals, whether it be in the NHS, occupational therapists or whatever, I will encourage them to talk to me if you know what's your biggest fear oh, well I might say something that'll upset you try it yeah so that really is our process that's what we want it's a road trip it's a love story but it's a very ordinary story of ordinary people surviving something that many people think is not survivable and we have survived it as best we can and, and more than survive it because you alluded early on Jane to the transformation that you went through personally as a result of Josh's death. And I know that's not something that any recently bereaved person wants to hear. When you're recently bereaved, all you want is your loved one back. But what positives have come from this, if, if that's not too tactless okay. a way of saying it? Not positives, but hmm. you did allude to the fact that this has stretched you as a person and grown you as a person. I suppose, you know, you realise that you have a limited amount of time and that you may as well do what you can with that limited amount of time, that every day is precious, every day is valuable, that, you know, you do the best you can. I recognise that for some people after the death of a child, the best they can do is to get up out of bed and get their clothes on. I would never be critical of that. I think that's amazing. That's quite an achievement. But... What I'm saying is for us is that we have 
been strengthened in some ways because we realise that every day is important and that there's something that we can do, you know, enjoy what you can as best you can. Um, Josh had his life ripped away age 22, which, you know, I mean, you could say, well, aren't we lucky we had 22 years? Some people have children's lives are ripped away age two, three, four. We had Josh in our lives for 22. We're very lucky to have had that. My dad died at 98. That's, that's 76 more years. And that is mind-blowing, isn't it? But it's another way of looking at it. There's the strangeness of it all. You have to, in a way, just work as best you can around the idea of making sense out of stuff that at times doesn't make sense and moving forward in the best way that you can living life as fully as possible. And I'm also very lucky that I do have other children. I never for a moment take that for granted. I'm very aware of the parents who, you know, at every screening will say, you know, I lost my only child and I can't see any future. In many ways, yeah. you know, that is so hard to get your head around and um, anyone who has lost their only child will at some point think that their life is unbearable and find it really hard to find hope again. Jane, for somebody listening who might be supporting somebody through the early stages of grief, and when I say early stages, I don't mean the first few days or weeks where everybody gathers around and cooks dinners and, you know, I'm talking about down the line, mm. where that's gone. Um, maybe the first, year, first anniversary is gone, but it's still really early days for that grieving person. What do you think they need? What can we offer them? Well, I would say that... By recognising anniversaries, by recognising how difficult Christmas is or, you know, family events are, that's really helpful by sending a card that says, this must be a difficult day for you, I'm thinking of you today. That's the greatest gift. And anyone who does that will be held in high esteem by a bereaved person, a simple card, a simple postcard, a simple yeah. message, which says, I'm thinking of you today, um, I imagine this might be a difficult day, or... I don't know what to say, but I'm just saying that I am still here and I still would like to be able to, you know, go for a walk with you or whatever. Don't give up on bereaved people because bereaved people at times will go through phases when they don't, they just say no to everything. They don't know how to yeah. be sociable. They don't know how to communicate. Don't give up on them. Well, our comfort zone totally shrinks, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So don't give up on yeah. bereaved people. And do remember that it can be... 20, 30 years down the line that a bereaved p person may suddenly have their legs taken from under them by something that happens. And I know that we've come across people, you know, we showed our film at the Cheltenham Literature Festival and there was a woman there of 90 who, who came with her daughter and her daughter said, my mother has never grieved, she's 90 now, is it too late, can she grieve? And we said, it's never too late to start to grieve. And the look on that 90-year-old woman's face was amazing. Because I think she'd bottled it up, she'd put it away, she had cut it off because she felt she had to be a mother to her child. Now her child was now in her 60s, I think, yeah. who'd brought her to this event. How does that happen? Where did we lose our grief? Where did it go off track and become something to be hidden away, something to be ashamed of, something to be fearful of? Where in our humanity... Did we decide that grief is not a thing we can do anymore? Well, that's a really complicated question, and it, it, we can look at it from many angles, and it's probably the subject of another yeah. podcast and discussion. But really, I think that one of the major blockers is 
that people do not like to feel helpless. If people can get alongside their helplessness, it would be so much better. Something can't be fixed. It's really difficult for people to be, if you like, in that situation. To relinquish control. To relinquish control and see that they can't fix it, but that they can yeah. actually be there. They can still be there in their helplessness. And, and just to acknowledge, we don't have all the answers. We don't always know what's ahead. Exactly. We don't know how we're going to be tomorrow. Yeah. And to somehow surrender mm. to that. Mm. It is a, you, I mean, you said that grief finds its way through, but at some point we also just have to surrender to it, right? Yes, but it will out if you don't find a yeah. way or a channel for it. You know that so many people, clients of mine and people that I've met, talk about panic attacks and anxiety, physical illnesses, that they experience people who have heart conditions, um, all sorts of you know, things that develop way into years after they've been bereaved, because in many ways it's been so repressed. You know? And so those psychological and physical symptoms are extremely, um, well, they're not rare. It it's very common it's to get very ill common. with unexpressed grief. Mm. Yep. Jane, thank you so much. It's been lovely to talk to you yeah. about this and to share our part, our story, um, you know, and our films. And I think that, you know, just talking about these things, finding the confidence and the courage to talk about these things is in itself a very important step towards breaking through the stigma that is the subject of death. You're so inspiring. You've got a wisdom about you that I love. And so I know that this conversation is going to touch people who are listening. And I really encourage you to go on to the goodgriefproject.co.uk where you'll find Jane and Jimmy's um, different films, short films that they've made, and also where you can find links to download A Love That Never Dies, their beautiful documentary, and it can be bought or rented. Strongly encourage anybody who has ever grieved, will ever grieve, or is supporting someone who's grieving to watch this very life-affirming documentary. It's beautifully done. And Jane, thank you for your gift in, in your grief, the gift that you've given everybody through these projects. Thank you, Liz. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. If your grief is making you unwell, please do go to your healthcare provider. Grief is a normal part of being human. You are not alone. Join the Shapes of Grief community in our private Facebook group and find more support and useful links on shapesofgrief.com. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleeson, stay well.